Well, in spite of Ron's pessimism, we really are making progress here in Romans. And we are in the middle of chapter 15. We're in the, kind of at the beginning of chapter 15. And, uh, and uh, we will be moving fairly quickly, actually, relatively speaking, through the next, uh, through the rest of 15 and chapter 16. So it won't be long and we will have completed this book. And, and I don't know about you, but it really seems to me kind of like we just got started. Uh, and uh, it's actually been a couple of years now we've been working on it. But. So we are in Romans chapter 15. He is in the middle of this uh, this ongoing uh, discussion of the subject of, of how do we deal with one another when we are of differing opinions? How do, how do Christians within the body of Christ relate to one another when we have very strong opinions that differ about areas that we are referring to as non-essentials? And again, I want to stress that doesn't mean they're non-important. We just mean they're non-essential. Uh, some of them aren't really all that important. We have a we have a propensity sometimes to make mountains out of molehills, and so some of the things we differ about and make really big issues are pretty trivial. But some of them are important issues, and I don't want want at all to imply that we're demeaning uh, uh, the significance of these issues. It's just that uh, they are not essential, as we said. But let's pick up reading in verse 1. We looked at uh, chapter 15. We looked at the first six verses last week. And today I want to look at verses 7 through 13, Lord willing. But in verse 1 he says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on Me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the forefathers and for the Gentiles to glorify glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, uh, so last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 6. What are some of the things that you remember uh, that stick in your mind that we talked about last week? Okay. Okay. We also talked about how somebody who has a really, really strong opinion can be weak. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Isn't that interesting? Uh, somebody can be really strong in something, actually very strong in their character, and yet they are. The, Paul classifies them here as weak, not in a derogatory sense, but in a sense that their conscience is weak. And hence, uh, oftentimes the people who fall into this category of having a weak conscience are very strong in their character because it takes a lot of times a lot of character, a lot of self-discipline to observe uh, scruples in areas uh, that oftentimes other other people don't share. So, what else? We talked about influencing people and how we can have cause other people to stumble and... uh, one of the things I thought about, we didn't really mention this, but I think I mentioned to, it to you afterwards that he tend to get influenced by the people that he respects. And mm-hmm. You have to really know somebody to be influenced by him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the guy that's, you know, somebody I don't know and I see them doing bad behavior, I'm not necessarily tempted to stumble in that area. Yeah. But if somebody that's, that I know pretty well or somebody that I spend time with or somebody that I have respect for, and I see them doing something, so that's, that's the kind of relationship I think is required for that assembly. Yeah, yeah. And, and what that would mean would be, of course, that we, uh, that, that we need to be very sensitive to the people who look up to us, the people who respect us, and the people who are close to us. We need to be particularly sensitive to them and not to do things that might cause them to stumble. Good point, <coughs> Jim. What else? <coughs> Excuse me. Remember we had a discussion about pleasing others? What did we what did we think about that area? We have an example of pleasing others. Okay, okay. And is this always a good thing to please others? To be mindful of pleasing others? If you do it by pride. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he said that and and as I said, I think one of the ways that we can we can help in that area is when when we know that there's somebody who doesn't have freedom in an area that we have freedom in or somebody who uh, feels compelled to do something like keep a certain days sacred that we don't feel compelled to keep. Uh, one of the things we can do to help them not to, not to uh, be offended in a sense of stumbling is to really encourage them to listen to their conscience. To really uh, encourage them to say, listen, I, I, you know, I feel I have liberty in this area, but I know you don't. And so I really encourage you not to do this because you don't have that liberty. You don't, so just because you know I do it, I, I, I really want to encourage you to listen to the conscience that God has given you. 
And so we can help to encourage people to be listening to their conscience and sensitive to their conscience. What else? Well, that line of uh, pleasing men who made the chart, pleasing men and pleasing God. Okay. There's a lot of good contrast on that. Yeah, yeah. The idea of of being a man pleaser as opposed to pleasing men. And Paul's very clear. He says, I'm not in the business of pleasing men. And and so there's a sense in which that, that's a that's a pejorative idea, this idea of being a man pleaser. And and the thought there is that is that we're pleasing men and we're not we're not really preoccupied with pleasing God. We're just we're just wanting to be uh, thought of uh, in a positive way by others or whatever. That's not the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here in Romans uh, uh, 15 when he's talking about pleasing others. But in Romans 14 when he's talking about pleasing others, he's talking about an attitude of of edifying, an attitude of building up. So it's not a self-centered pleasing of others, but it's an others-centered pleasing of others. The desire to build up, to edify uh, to help them walk with Christ, etc., etc., etc. So there are two different ways that that term is used, and we need to keep that in mind. What else? Anything else that we talked about last week you want to bring up? Okay, so, so as we see, Paul began this discussion in chapter 14, clear back in verse 1, and he begins it with the uh, there in 14.1 with the statement he says, now accept the one who is weak in faith. So he begins actually by addressing this problem of the weak and the strong, but he begins it by addressing those who were in the position of strength. Okay, And this would be, as we saw in the context, this would be the, uh, can I call them the Gentile background believers. These are the believers in the church in Rome. These are the Christians in the church in Rome who are Gentiles. They come from a Gentile background. They come from a Gentile culture. And, and so they don't have any kind of natural inclination to think in the terms that the, what we could call the Jewish background believers think in terms of, okay, having to do with issues of whether or not certain meat is kosher or whether certain wine has been prepared in a kosher matter, uh, manner, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we have these two groups and throughout all of chapter 14 and chapter, first part of chapter 15, he's been talking about the weak and he's been talking about the strong, although he doesn't actually use the word strong until he gets there into chapter 15. But he's been talking about those two categories. But, but what really is it, uh, what really here is, is the barrier that's, that exists between these two groups is, is not just a matter of conscience, but it's a, but it's a, but it's a kind of a Jewish Gentile issue. Okay. Uh, and, and so as we move on into chapter 15 and the verses we're going to look at today, Paul kind of moves away from the, from the weak, strong discussion and he moves into a Jew-Gentile discussion because that's really what's at the root. That's really what's at the, at the basis of this disagreement or difference of opinion in the church is the difference of opinion and difference of view that those coming from a Jewish background have as opposed to those who are coming from a Gentile background have. It just so happens that those coming from the Gentile background 
happen to have, in this particular case, a better understanding of the liberty they have in Christ. Now, it's not to their merit. It's not because they're smarter. It's just because they don't, they don't bring into their faith in this particular issue the baggage that the Jewish believers bring into their, bring into their faith. Okay? They don't bring that, that baggage of the law in because they never had it. Okay? We bring our own baggage. We all have our baggage we bring. And, and what strikes me about this is I'm thinking about here we have this church in Rome and they have this, they have this, uh, this, this tension in the church in Rome over the question of whether or not we eat meat that's kosher or not, or whether or not we meet because we don't know if it's kosher, or whether or not we drink wine because we don't know if it's kosher, and so we won't eat meat and we won't drink wine and we will observe certain days. And so we have this tension in the church and everybody's viewing it as this big theological doctrinal issue. When in reality, it's more of a cultural issue, isn't it? It's more of an issue of people's background of their experiences. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking how oftentimes the issues in the church that divide us and we get, we get thinking in terms of these great, profound theological issues. Really, the differences really come down to, well, this is just the way I was raised. Or this is the way I grew up. You know, I was thinking. I think in one area where this is a uh, uh, this is kind of ongoing issue that I encounter from time to time is the question of hymns or courses. Hymns or courses, okay? And it's interesting that I I find these discussions uh, come up every once in a while. And uh, and you know, I'm really big on the hymns. I really am. And uh, the courses, they're okay, but they just don't light my fire. Right? Okay? They just, most of them. Some of them do. But most of them just don't like my father. I love the hymns. Now, why do I love the hymns? Now, when I see, I don't know, occasionally I'll come across somebody who's making a strong argument that, that, that there's really something wrong with the church when we sing only choruses and we don't sing the old hymns. And then they'll give their arguments and they, they, they'll, they'll, they'll provide these comparisons between hymns and choruses and make these arguments. And even though I'm really a big hymn person, I read those arguments and I want to be persuaded that there really is a strong argument for singing the hymns as opposed to the choruses. But when I read the arguments, they don't persuade me. And I think, so why is it? And then when I think about the people who usually make those arguments about the importance of the hymns and and that we really ought to be singing the hymns in our worship services rather than the choruses, are people that are my age. They're people who grew up in the church and we sang these hymns as children. And, and we responded to those hymns as children. They defined our walk with God. I very seldom see a young person writing an argument for hymns in preference over courses. You know? Now, I'm not coming down on one side or the other in this debate. I just want to point out to you that a great deal of the debate that separates Christians on this issue, and unfortunately Christians do separate over this issue, 
that a great deal of that debate has a lot more to do with our background and our culture and our experience, doesn't it, than the real theological issues that are involved. And I I suppose that there are a lot of things that, as we thought about, that divide Christians. If we really cut to the chase, we'd find out it's really not so much a doctrinal issue. It's not, you know, it's not that we really have that much support in Scripture for one position or the other. But it's just the way we were raised or it's just our experience or something we encountered in life or something we didn't encounter in life. And that inclines us towards one way or another. And if that's true, then I think to some degree, we need to really cut to the chase. And I think that's what Paul does here in verses 7 through 13. He really cuts to the chase. Because now he's no longer talking about the weak or the strong, but he's talking about the Jew or the Gentile. And this is really the issue. This is really the issue that's at stake. And so that's where Paul goes, beginning in verse 7, where he says... uh, He says, therefore, accept one another. And really, verses 7 through 13 are the conclusion of his whole discussion that began in 14. And so you'll notice that 15.7 is very similar to 14.1, isn't it? He begins 14.1 admonishing the strong. And he says, you that are strong, accept those that are weak. And he uses that term, accept. And so here, Paul again uses this term. So he's kind of... It's kind of like here he's concluding his argument. And, and, uh, and he's, he's made a lot of arguments as he's gone through from 14.1 up to this point. He's given us a lot of reasons why we should accept one another. Uh, he's, he said we should accept one another because we all are serving the Lord. The weak and the strong, the Jew and the Gentile. Uh, believers, we're all serving the Lord. And we ought to accept one another because we're all God's servants. Okay, We're not one another's servants in that sense. He says we should accept one another because Christ died for the other person. He didn't just die for me, but He died for the other person. He's told us that we should accept one another because the kingdom of God is not about these minor issues. It's not about eating and drinking. It is rather about righteousness and joy and peace. He's told us that we should accept one another because our brother or sister in Christ is the work of God. And if we are disregard that, we are tearing down the work of God. He's told us that we should accept one another because Christ did not please Himself, so neither should we. So He's given us a number of reasons as we've gone through chapter 14 and into 15. He's given us a number of reasons why we should accept one another. I've been thinking this week as I've been thinking on this passage and thinking how long this passage is. I mean, he's gone for over a chapter here now. He's gone on on this subject. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking how far short the church falls in this area. But I was actually encouraged because what I realized was how oftentimes I hear this passage talked about. And I hear Christians being exhorted and exhorting one another about these principles. And I think, boy, I'm glad God put that in the Scriptures. Because where would the church be if we didn't have Romans 14 and 15? If we didn't have this just... uh, The Holy Spirit just belaboring this issue as He did 
where would the church be? Well, we've dropped the ball a lot in this area, but boy, I shudder to think where we'd be if we didn't have Romans 14 and 15. <laughs> or worse, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so we we have this tremendous passage which serves as a check on our lives, and we need it so much because we are all we are all so inclined to be pushing away, pushing others away. And Paul begins in 14.1, he tells us to accept one another, and now he reaches the conclusion of the passage here in 15.7, the beginning of his conclusion, and he repeats that statement. He says, now accept one another, even as Christ also has accepted you. And he's using the same word there. And we talked a little bit about this word when we got to 14, when we looked at it in fourteen one. But the idea is, it's it's not just a it's not just a toleration. It's not just putting up with somebody. He doesn't say, okay, everybody put up with one another. That's not what he's saying. He's saying accept one another. There's a sense of hospitality here. There's a sense of of including someone and bringing them to your table to eat with you. So there is, I believe, a sense here in which Paul has in mind, among all the other things he has in mind, one of the things he has in mind is is including others, including one another in your love feasts, in your agape meals. Okay. Now, now we have a tradition here at Trinity that we periodically have agape meals, right? And so we put out a bunch of tables in the gym and we lay out a big spread and we all come and we eat, okay? And those are great and I enjoy those and I'm sure you do too. But, but in the New Testament, the agape meals included something more than that. What was that? The communion. The Lord's Supper. So when in the Scriptures when we're thinking about the church coming together and eating. And for example, we have a, a fairly lengthy passage about this in 1 Corinthians where it wasn't being done properly. And, and, and when they were coming together, they were eating. But in the context of their coming together and eating, they were taking the bread and they were taking the cup and they were remembering the Lord's death until He comes. Okay. So there's a very close association in the New Testament with the idea of what we call communion with the agape meal. Now, we do that periodically at our agape meals. We have done it where we've had uh, communion in association with our agape meals. We don't typically do that, but we have done that. But in the New Testament, as we understand the New Testament church, they did this weekly. They would come together and they would have their meals together and they would break bread together and they would remember the Lord's death until He comes. Okay. And so when Paul is saying to us, believers in Rome, <laughs> to accept one another, to receive one another. There's a sense of hospitality of bringing them to your table, eating a meal together, and remembering the Lord together. And so, there is, incidentally, as we study the concept in the New Testament of the Lord's Supper, 
or communion or breaking of bread, whatever you prefer to call it. As we study that concept or that practice in the New Testament, of course, the primary thought of the Lord's Supper is remembering his death, right? Proclaiming his death until he comes. That's the primary thought. But there's another important element that Paul uh, brings out. And he brings it out uh, uh, particularly in, uh, well, let me go over to the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you're interested. Uh, he says uh, He says this. Uh, he's, he's actually talking about the whole issue of eating meat to the sacrifice to idols and all sorts. Of that. That's all in this context here. But then he goes on and he says in verse 15, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. And so, in the communion service, in the Lord's Supper, there is not only the reminder of the Lord's death, but there is the reminder of the oneness of the body of Christ. So, one of the things that, that I like to think about when I take communion is I not only like to think about what the Lord has done for me and what it represents. But I like to look around the room and look at the others who are doing what I am doing because we're all partaking of one loaf. And we are all drinking of one cup. And what we're saying is, not only has Christ died for me, but I am one with all these other people because we're all taking the same loaf. And we're all drinking of the same cup. Now, you're probably familiar when you get over in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, uh, you'll remember that there's the, the admonition, he says, to examine yourselves before you take the cup. And we always make a big thing out of that, don't we? We make a big issue about before you take the communion, you examine yourself to see if you're right before the Lord. Do you know what the particular sin is? that Paul was wrestling with there in 1 Corinthians that he was telling them to examine themselves regarding? It was the sin of disunity. It was the sin of disregarding your brother or sister. And he denies them. He says, I hear that when you come together, there are divisions among you. And he says in part, I believe it. And then he goes on. He talks about that a little bit. And then in a few verses later, then he says, I receive from the Lord. What I give to you, I receive from the Lord. That on the night in which the Lord was betrayed, he took bread, etc., etc. And he goes into his description of how we ought to take communion, how we ought to break bread. And he says, you make sure you examine yourself. In the context, he's admonishing the Corinthians of whom he has heard that there are divisions among them when they come together to take the Lord's table. And so oftentimes when we hear that admonition, we look internally and we think, is there some sin in my life, etc. And we think very personally. But one of the things we need to be asking ourselves is, am I right with my brothers and sisters in Christ? <laughs> and, and so there are all these things that we think about, aren't there? 
There are all these things we think about when, when we're admonished to examine ourselves. But have you ever asked yourself just before you took the cup and the bread, is there a barrier between me and another brother or sister in Christ? And Paul warns us that if we take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner, that we're imperiling our own lives. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? That's pretty sobering. Just as a sidelight, let me just add that Paul says, so examine yourself and then eat. I've seen people who have... Uh, who have week after week, month after month, and year after year not taken the Lord's table. I don't think there's ever a reason not to take the Lord's Supper. He says, examine yourself, get right with God, get right with your brother or sister, and then take the table. Take the, take the elements. Well, the whole point of that is that the reason I bring all that up is because <clears throat> because this idea of accepting one another and being uh, being uh, being understanding of one another and being united with one another, this is this is central to what we do as Christians, and it is represented for us. And no place is it better represented for us than in the breaking of bread in the communion. Many years ago. I had sinned grievously against another brother in Christ. And, uh, and, and it went on for years, several years. Um, and, uh, but eventually, as the Lord dealt with my life, a whole long, long story, too long and too boring for all of you. But as God dealt with my life and began to show me that this was wrong, I had an opportunity to get right with this guy. This was many years ago now, 20, 25 years ago, I don't remember. So, so I had an opportunity to get right with this guy, and he, was, uh, and he happened to be here in Norman at a conference. He was from out of state, but he happened to be here in Norman for a conference. And, uh, and so I went, and I met with him, and acknowledged to him how I had wronged him. And there were a room full of there. It was in a hotel here in Norman. We were just in a hotel room together. And after we had been reconciled together, then he pulled out the bread and cup. And together we remembered the Lord. As an expression of our union and our oneness in Christ. You know, we... We have this idea of communion that it can only be done in the sanctuary, you know, and we have to have the elders and deacons. And that's all fine. I have no objection to, to that. You know, when we're meeting corporately like that, it's appropriate that those who are leaders should take the leadership in that. But there are times in our lives as believers, maybe it's just with the family or maybe it's with a group of brothers or sisters, uh, when it's just appropriate for you just to stop and together to take the cup, to take the bread, to bless the Lord, to thank Him for His sacrifice, and together to take the cup and say, we are one in Christ. 
But we are so invested in and we are so focused on the things that divide us, the things we disagree about. And again, I say some of those are important. But we get so focused on those, we forget that we are one in Christ, that we partake of the same loaf and that we partake of the same cup. And so Paul says, accept one another. Bring one another into your love feast. And sit down and eat together. And remember Christ together. Even as Christ has accepted you to the glory of God. Now, commentators aren't sure in that expression there at the end of verse 7, to the glory of God, whether that's a reference to the glory that God gets from Christ accepting us, or whether it's the glory that God gets from us accepting one another. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know which it is, but either way it works, doesn't it? Christ is glor- God is glorified in Christ accepting you. And God is glorified, as he said in verse 6, as we accept one another. And so as you and I somehow move past these things that we have different opinions about and still have difference of opinion about, as we move past those things to embrace one another, to break bread together, to remember our common bond in Christ, God is glorified. And with one voice we glorify Him. And then He explains to us about this whole thing about Christ accepting us, beginning in verse 8. He says, For for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then he goes on with the quotes that we'll get to in a minute. But that verse 8 and the first part of verse 9, that whole sentence there, is a, it's a very awkward sentence. It's a, a semantically, structurally, a very difficult sentence to figure out. So, uh, let me kind of diagram. There's a couple main ways of looking at it. Uh, but... Uh, the way that I see it, and most of the commentators, or perhaps even all the commentators that I consulted on it, came down on this side of the debate, uh, because it seems to fit best with the context of what Paul is trying to say in the passage. Okay. So he starts out and he says, he says, For I say, and we just blitz right on by that, because to us, that doesn't say anything in English other than the fact that Paul's telling us something. Okay. But in reality... In the Greek, uh, and, and in, the, in, the, in the context of the New Testament, this is a significant statement. This is a big red flag. Paul is taking a big red flag and he's sticking it in the ground here and he's saying, don't miss this. So like how Jesus would say, truly, truly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of the same idea, okay? It's, it's an introduction of a profoundly solemn doctrinal statement. You know, there are passages in Scripture when I read them 
I just go, okay, this is a wild passage. You have some passages like that. You read them and there's just something inside of you just kind of swells up. And, and yet you can't get your handle on it. Right? You can't get a handle on it. You just, you just know this is loaded and I can't even figure it out. This is one of those passages to me. This is one of those passages when I read it and I go, well, this is loaded. I woke up in the middle of the night Friday night thinking about these verses. Going, this is a load of stuff. He's talking to me. I'm a Gentile, folks. I mean, we read this Gentile Jew stuff and we, you know, we just go on through it, and, you know, and it's just so much head stuff. But folks, I'm a Gentile. I don't have any claim to this stuff. Abraham's not my father. And he's not yours either if you're a Gentile. Not in the flesh. So what claim do you have? What claim do I have? This passage is loaded. Because what he's telling me here is that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision, that's the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might, he says, confirm the promises to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God because of his mercy. What does he mean? Well, first of all, he says with his four I say, it gets the flag, gets our ears up, gets our attention. And then he says, Christ has become a servant of the circumcision. Okay, so Christ has become. You grammarians, what's the significance of the way that's worded? What tense is that? Okay, so we don't have any grammarians in here. <laughs> it's perfect tense. It's the perfect tense. What does that mean? It means it's something that has happened in the past and is going on today. So it's not just that Christ was the servant of the circumcision. He is the servant of the circumcision, even today. That's important to Paul, right? Because Paul is saying this wasn't just something that was true and now he's, you know, and now he's gone to heaven and no. It's kind of fun. A couple of commentators mentioned this. I'd never really thought about this before, but you know Jesus is still a Jew. When he ascended into heaven, he ascended bodily, did he not? That body that he ascended into heaven with is a descendant of Abraham. <laughs> He's still a Jew. It's kind of fun, isn't it? And so he is he became a servant of the circumcision and is yet today serving the circumcision. How is he doing that? Well, he's doing it, he says. Uh, let me get the wording right here. He's doing it here, he says, on behalf of the truth of God. So Christ has become a servant of the circumcision. Uh, and and the way this is accomplished is by him uh, him uh, uh, doing so on behalf of the truth of God. 
Well, we could think, well, what does he mean by the truth of God? You know, could, does he mean the gospel? What, what does he mean? Well, in the context, as he goes on, he talks about the promises to the fathers. So I think that the idea here is that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision in order that God's word might be true. Now, that doesn't mean that there was ever any question about it. But what it means is that, is that Christ becoming a servant of the circumcision is the way the promises of God were fulfilled. If Christ had not become a servant of the circumcision, God would have been a liar. There's never any chance of that, of course, happening. But Christ is the means by which God's promises to Israel were fulfilled. So he became a servant of the circumcision to fulfill the promises of God. And the promises of God pertain to two groups of people. The first is the promises to the fathers. And what he's referring to there, of course, is the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises to the physical descendants of Abraham. And he's saying that Christ has become a servant on behalf of God's truth in order to fulfill the promises that God has made to the fathers on behalf of the Jews, on behalf of Israel. But there's another part of it. There's another reason that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision. And that is, he says, so that, he says, the Gentiles will glorify God because of His mercy. I know you can't read this. That's why I say it as I write it. That way you know what I've got written. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> So Christ became, attention folks, this is important, for I say, Christ became a servant of the circumcision on behalf of God's truth in order to fulfill the promises made to the fathers to make sure those came true and to make sure that the Gentiles glorify God for His mercy. So what Christ did in coming to earth and becoming a servant of the circumcision what Christ did, He did in order that both Jews and Gentiles could benefit. Now, where does Paul get this? Where does Paul get this? We start out in the Bible, in Genesis, and, and we start getting the whole story about the human race and everything. And we get up to chapter 10 in Genesis. And for those of you who were with us back in ancient history when we went through Genesis, okay, uh, you'll remember we got to Genesis chapter 10. And Genesis chapter 10 contains what? Do you remember? Now I'm really testing you, aren't I? No? Table of Nations. The Table of Nations. Remember that? So he starts listing all these descendants of Noah... And, and who they all were and where they all went. And it's basically a table of the nations. And it, but when we studied that, when we went through Genesis 10 and we studied the table of nations, we noticed there was a glaring exclusion. 
from the table of nations. What was it? It was Israel. Israel is not in the table of nations. So what happens then, you go on into chapter 11 and you have the the beginning of chapter 11, you have the story of the Tower of Babel and then following that, you start to get the story of Israel. So what you have up through chapter 10 in Genesis is kind of just a description of all of all of mankind, right? All the nations, all the peoples. But then that stops in chapter 10. And beginning there in the middle of chapter 11 and on through the rest of all the Old Testament, you have what story? Story of the Jews. Story of the people of God. Story of the descendants of Abraham. It's all about, or almost, not all, exclusively, but, but primarily, chiefly, it is about Israel and Israel's relationship with God. Right? The entire rest of the Old Testament. So we've got ten chapters at the beginning of the Old Testament about all of us. And you and I as Gentiles are included in that chapter ten, by the way. I don't know where, but we're in there. I don't know where you are. I'm in there somewhere and you're in there somewhere. Okay. We're in chapter 10. Okay. And then we just fall off the map. And the rest of the story is about the Jews. And so I go, so where's Paul get this? Where does Paul get this idea that Christ became a servant of the circumcision not only to benefit the Jews, but also to benefit the Gentiles. Well, he gets it from the Old Testament, folks. He gets it from the Old Testament. Because even though the Old Testament is chiefly, predominantly, the story of the Jews, over and over again, in throughout the Old Testament, this thread keeps coming to the surface. That this is just this is not just about the Jews. It's about the Gentiles. And so Paul then gives us four quotes from the Old Testament. And what's interesting to me about the quotes that Paul selects, beginning in verse nine, verse nine, verse ten, verse eleven, and verse twelve, he gives us four different quotes. First he gives us a quote from Psalms, and he gives us a quote from Deuteronomy, and he gives us another quote from Psalms, and then he gives us a quote from Isaiah. And, and there's a couple interesting things about Paul's selection here because these are not the only verses that talk about the Gentiles. But he selects these four verses. Why does he select these four verses? Well, one thing that's interesting about his selection is that they come from the three sections of the Jewish canon. The Jewish canon, the Old Testament, to the Jew is divided into three sections. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And Paul selects from each one of those three sections quotations to prove that Christ accepts the Gentiles. And that that was his intent all along. So he gives us a quote from the writings, the book of Psalms. Then he gives us a quote from the law, the book of Deuteronomy. Then he goes back and he gives us another quote from the writings in Psalms. And then he gives us Isaiah, a quote from the prophets. 
But not only is it significant which passages Paul selects, but it's interesting to me the order that he puts them in. Because if you'll notice the quotes as we read them, there's kind of a progression going on. In beginning in verse 9, after he raises the subject of the Gentiles glorifying God for his mercy, he begins with his quotes and he says, as it is written, and here's the quote first from uh, Psalm 18. This is David speaking. He says, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Now, as I said, this is David speaking. And he's talking about, he's, he's, uh, this is a, a psalm that he composed after his victory over Saul and he was delivered from Saul and from all of his enemies. And he composes this psalm and he says, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to praise God among the Gentiles. This is David. <laughs> so the, the, the ultimate Jewish king says, I'm going to tell the Gentiles about this. He wants the Gentiles to know. And some think, and I think too along with them, that, that if Paul uses it here, he's thinking not only of David, but he's thinking messianically. He's thinking of Christ, who wanted to preach to us Gentiles. He wanted to declare the glory of God to us Gentiles. And I think Paul may not only be thinking of David and maybe thinking messianically, but I think to some sense Paul's probably thinking of his own ministry. He's been called to the Gentiles. And so as he reads this verse, he probably kind of personalizes it and goes, this is me. This is my job. <laughs> this is what God has called me to do, to go to the Gentiles and to proclaim his glory to the Gentiles. And so in the first quote, we have we have simply somebody going to the Gentiles and telling the Gentiles about the glory of God. Isn't this God cool? Look at this God in the awesome. Gentiles, you need to see this. God is really cool. But then he goes on and he gives us the next quote. And the next quote is from Deuteronomy. And this is from the Song of Moses just shortly before he dies. And at the end of the Song of Moses, Moses says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So now it's not just somebody coming and telling the Gentiles about this great God, but the Gentiles are starting to catch on. And they're seeing what God has done with the Jews. And they have entered into the Jews' joy and are rejoicing with the Jews over this great God of salvation. So they're seeing God at work in the Jews and they're rejoicing with the Jews. But then he goes on again and this time he goes back to Psalm Psalm 117 and you remember Psalm 117 that little dinky psalm there towards the, you know, the last third of the Psalms. Psalm 117 is just two verses long. And this is the first verse. And, and David says, David says, praise the Lord, or whoever the writer of that song is, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. So it's first somebody is coming to the Gentiles and telling them about the greatness of God. And then it's the Gentiles beginning to catch on and seeing what God has done with the Jews. 
and rejoicing with the Jews at what God has done. But now it has become a personal experience for the Gentiles of God's salvation. Now it's no longer what I've seen that I'm rejoicing over what I have seen God do in other lives, but now I'm seeing what God has done in my life. There's no mention here of the Jews. It's the Gentiles' personal experience of God and their praise of Him. And he says, let all the nations praise Him. And then he finally wraps it up with Isaiah and he says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles hope. Well, the root of Jesse there is a messianic expression, of course. The word root there is... uh, uh, primarily has the sense of that part of a plant which is underground, which you do not see. That's the idea of the sense of the Greek word there. But it is used in a number of places in, in the Scripture and in Greek writing to represent not so much the underground root, but the shoot that springs up from it, right? The thing that comes shooting up out of the root that just kind of peeks its head up out of the ground. You go, oh, where did that come from, you know? We have over on the side of our backyard, we have an ongoing perennial problem with poison ivy. And, and I have, uh, I have, I'm not particularly allergic to it, but my wife is inflammably allergic to poison ivy. And uh, so when it's time to deal with the poison ivy, I do it, okay? I, and even though I'm not particularly allergic to it, I put on the long sleeves, the long pants, the rubber gloves, you know, and I go out there and I start pulling it out. But you know, the problem is, I'll pull this, you know, but there's that, that vine that goes underground, right? And then it springs up over here. So you've got to get that vine, you've got to pull that vine out from underground, you know? And, uh, and uh, you know, maybe one of these years I'll finally get all of it. I don't know. But, you know, we go through this you know, regularly at our house. Well, Christ is that shoot from, from Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. Okay. So who's the first sprout? Who's the first root of Jesse? David. He's the first one, right? He's the first sprout. Okay. But Christ is the second David. And so he is, in a sense, the root of Jesse. Okay. And so we have this term, the root of Jesse. Sometimes he's called the root of David. But here he's called the root of Jesse. And he says concerning this root of Jesse, this, this one who springs from, up from Jesse, he's down in the ground, we don't see him, but the sprout comes up and it says he's going to rise up to do what? Rule the Gentiles. And he says, in him will the Gentiles hope. In him will the Gentiles hope. So, so we have this ruler and we're hoping. That. Now, we can relate to that because we're always doing that, aren't we? Hoping in our rulers. You know? We keep hoping in our rulers. We just, we just, it's our human nature. We just hope in our rulers. 
we, you know, so we we have a big election and and we vote. And if the guy we vote for wins, great, you know, we're, our country's going to do well. We're going to prosper. We're going to, you know. And then what happens? We're disappointed, aren't we? Every time. It doesn't matter whether the guy we think should win wins or the guy we don't think should win wins. We're always disappointed in our rulers. But you know what the Scripture says about the root of Jesse? It says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And so I have a hope. Not a I hope so hope, but I believe it's really going to happen hope. That Christ is going to rule the nations. Christ is going to rule the nations and it will be a righteous kingdom. It will be a righteous kingdom. And all that that king does will be right. And all that king does will be just. And I and you will thrive under his rulership. That is my hope. And that's your hope. And that's the hope of every believer you disagree with. We may not even agree about how all that's going to happen. I may think it's going to happen this way. And I have my whole eschatological system, you know. And you have yours and yours is over here. And you think it's all going to happen. We, we, all, we, we, we have big differences about how it's going to happen. But the one thing we as believers agree on is that Christ will rule the nations. And it will be a righteous kingdom. That is our hope. Now, may the God of hope, he says, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Would you believe that? Would you believe that Christ is going to rule the nations? May God, as you believe that, fill you with joy and peace because that's what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about eating and drinking. It's not about all these little things that you and I quarrel about. It's about righteousness and joy and peace, he told us in chapter 14. And may God fill us with that joy and peace and fill us so that we abound in hope, he says there in verse 13, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Folks, when I studied this passage, I told God yesterday, I said, God, I can't teach this passage because I can't even do it. fail at this so much. And I have a hunch you do too. Right? How's it going to happen? It's going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's so fascinating to me that Paul takes this this area of not judging one another, not condemning one another, not being condescending towards one another, this idea of accepting one another, he takes this idea and he links it to hope and joy and peace and the power of the Holy Spirit. These are all things that are linked 
to this issue of the unity of the body of Christ. Is it any wonder as Christians we struggle for joy? Is it any wonder we struggle for peace? Is it any wonder that oftentimes we're not filled with hope? Because we're too busy quarreling with one another. And when we quarrel with one another, we short-circuit the work of the Holy Spirit. May God, by His grace, help us to grow in accepting one another even as Christ has accepted us. Well, this is the kind of the end of the main part of Romans. This is kind of the end of his exhortation, instructional. And then he, from now on, he moves into kind of a lot of personal stuff about the Romans, about himself, about what he's doing, about his ministry, and then a lot about other people there in Rome and people that are with him. And so we really have kind of come to the kind of come to the end of the main body of the book of Romans. There's much meat still to be <coughs> to be uh, feasted on, but this is kind of the end. And so it is appropriate that verse 17 really serves kind of as a benediction uh, to all of it when he says, uh, excuse me, verse 13 serves as a benediction to all of it when he says, "Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing." in believing all that stuff that we've been studying from chapter 1 so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Next week we'll go on in verse 14.